Well, the Bible reading this morning is printed on the, um, the yellow sheet, if you'd like to follow along. And um, we started looking at this um, last Sunday, and um, we sort of dealt with most of the is this parable of the sower, most of it last Sunday. We're just going to focus on one verse this morning and really unpack that. But I'm going to read from, just to recap, uh, from Luke chapter 8, and uh, we're reading from verses, verses 11 to 15, and it's... It's Jesus' explanation of the parable. He's told the parable to his friends and now his, um, or to the crowd, and now he's explaining it to his closest friends. And he says this, This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, But they have no root. They believe for a while, but in a time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. So first of all, just a quick um, recap, if you weren't here last, well, no one was here last Sunday, but um, if you didn't, (laughs) why, where were you? Why were you here? A quick recap for those who who weren't listening online or haven't kind of caught up since, just to kind of set the context, that um, Jesus, the beginning of chapter 8, Jesus is with his kind of closest uh, communities, with the 12 apostles, and he's with this... um, party of women who we don't hear much about but they are as present as the apostles are because they travel around with Jesus and they uh, they support him out of their own means we're told and they do so because their lives have been changed by Jesus so this group this 12 and then the this extended group with the women they need no convincing that Jesus is good news they've met him they've experienced him Their lives have been changed by him. We're told the women have been cured of evil spirits and diseases. So these are the kind of the enthusiasts. And one of the most frustrating things about being an enthusiast for Jesus Christ and for not needing any convincing that he is good news is the blank face that you see on other people's faces when you try and share your enthusiasm for Jesus with them. And it's like, oh, that's nice. And you're thinking... No, it's not nice. It is life-changing. It is revolutionary. This is about eternal life. And so I think one of the reasons Jesus tells this parable is to help this group of real enthusiasts to understand why not everyone is going to get it. And that the issue is not with the message of good news. The issue is with the receptiveness of the lives into which it falls. And so he tells this very famous story about the parable of the sower who throws the same seed onto different ground and it produces different uh, different results the first seed falls on the path which is rock hard and it never even germinates and last Sunday I said a little bit about what it is that makes people's hearts hardened towards the gospel of Jesus Christ and normally uh, very often it's around issues of suffering and injustice that makes people's hearts hard to the gospel and it bounces off and it never even germinates and I said a bit about that last Sunday The second seed falls onto rock, where there's a little bit of soil, as I've 
discovered, um, having never spent any time in the garden in the last 10 years. I spent literally the last three months in the garden. And uh, one of the things I've discovered, to my surprise, are plants growing on rocks. Because we have this, well, it's, it's kind of, I guess you would describe it as a, as a rockery, but literally the only thing in it are rocks. And, and, and uh, some plants, or mainly weeds, growing on the rocks. And I'm like, well, how can that be? Because there's like literally a millimetre or two millimetres of soil on top of the rock. But there's like this big healthy plant growing on top of it. And it's the kind of weeding I love because you just peel them off. It's so satisfying. Like in five seconds, you like weeded a whole patch because you literally peel them off. Because there, no, you know, there are no roots. And you know, I've, I've experienced people over the years who have this initial enthusiasm to the good news of Jesus. But then the roots, they don't put roots down, which is why Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, in chapter 2, verse 6, has this advice. He says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Once we receive Christ as Lord, you've got to start putting roots down Otherwise, you'll end up being swept away. The fourth seed is the one that produces this amazingly fruitful crop, 30, 60, 100 times. Now, I've read this parable a zillion times in the, you know, over my lifetime. You know, I've been going to church since before I was born. I was in the womb when I started going to church. I literally had no choice. So I've heard this story a zillion times. And it was only about a year ago that something dawned on me. And what dawned on me was that not many of us are like the seed that falls on the fourth kind of ground. There are very few Christians, it uh, seems to me, who produce this amazing crop 30, 60 or 100 times. It's like way beyond any crop that a farmer would anticipate, you know, to get back 100 times what you've sown. And I noticed that actually we pass over the third ground on which the seed falls, but... The thing that struck me was, I think most of us, most Christians in most churches, and that's a bit of a generalisation, but most Christians in most churches, we're like, we're like the third type of ground. And the interesting thing in the parable is, we think about four different types of ground, but there's nothing in the parable to tell us what kind of ground the third seed lands on. We're not told what the ground is like, we're simply told that thorns grow up and choke, uh, they choke the crop. So the first two seeds, they, cut, they die. The first seed gets snatched away, never germinates. The second seed germinates and dies very quickly. The third seed uh, that lands among thorns, it doesn't die. It grows, but its growth is stunted. It doesn't, it's not fruitful. And so I'd say about a year ago, I was looking at this and I, I, I thought, hang on a minute, that's what... That's what I'm like. And I think that's probably what most people in most churches are like. We're not dead. Uh, you know, we, we turn up at church on a Sunday and we kind of live our Christian lives and we, you know, we, we help people across the road, whether or not they want to be helped across the road. You know, we kind of, we do kind of good, we kind of do good things and we pray and sometimes we read our, you know, we read our Bibles. But our, if we're honest, our lives as Christians, they're not fantastically Fruitful. They're not fantastically productive for the kingdom of God, uh, but we're you know we're alive. Why are we not as fruitful as we should be? 
And in the parable, Jesus tells us exactly why we're not as fruitful as we might wish we were. He says, as they go on their way, they are choked uh, by life's, Luke writes, as by life's worries, riches and pleasures. In Mark's gospel, and Mark is the, um, Luke is, Luke has a copy of Mark's gospel in front of him when he writes his gospel, uh, as Matthew does. And so they, they, they kind of, they make a few adaptions. When you look at Mark's gospel, the way that Mark describes it, Mark says the reasons that we're not fruitful are because of the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. Worries of this life, deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. Uh, those are the things that stop us being fruitful in the kingdom of God, fruitful in our Christian lives. And I was thinking in these, uh, you know, this is very pertinent in these days in which we're living because we live in an age and in a time of huge anxiety. People are very worried about what's going on in our world at the moment. People are very worried about the future. People are very worried about their jobs and about what is going to happen. They're worried about finances, about Riches. We're worried about all kinds of things. And they're all things that take our eyes away from God. So I want to think about these three things and just think about, well, if we want to be fruitful followers of Jesus Christ, if we want to be fruitful in our lives as Christians, we have to deal with these three things because they're all there and they're in all of our lives. And we need to tackle them if we are to become more fruitful in the kingdom of God. So first off, Jesus says, One of the things that chokes us, that stunts our growth, are the worries of this life. And the problem is, we all worry because there's a lot to worry about. You know, we worry about our children and we worry about our parents and we worry about finances and we worry about, you know, every single day. There are like a zillion things that we worry about. And the thing with worry is we worry about problems that we can't solve. That's why they're worries. If we thought of something that was a problem and instantly we knew what the solution was going to be, we wouldn't worry about it. But there's so many things that are out of our control. And the thing is, when you focus on the, on the worry, when you focus on the problem, what are you not doing? Well, you're not focusing on the one who can actually solve the problem. Uh, we're going to come in a, in a couple of weeks. I don't want to kind of uh, preempt it, but there's a, a lovely series of episodes that Luke groups together. In fact, all the gospel writers grouped together from verse 22 of chapter 8 right through to the end of the chapter where there are four insurmountable problems. There are four situations that are utterly unsolvable. Four different things that are beyond anyone's ability to control. But when Jesus steps in, all of them get solved. And we'll look at those in a a few weeks. You see, one of the uh, things of uh, living in relationship with God is we have the opportunity to fix our eyes on the problem solver, the one who is bigger than the problem. But that requires a daily choice and a constant choice that every time you are, there's an anxiety or there's a concern, rather than (laughs) focusing on that, you think, well, actually, I know someone who is bigger than that problem. I know I've told this this story before, but a few years ago, um, uh, we were facing a a tax bill. It was quite a big tax bill that we had no, there was simply no way of being able to pay the tax bill. The reason we hadn't paid it was because as we were going along, we didn't have enough money to pay it. So I thought, well, by the end of the tax year, we'll be able to pay it. And then we got to the end of the tax year and we still couldn't pay it. So we had this quite large tax bill 
that we couldn't pay. We got to the end of January, the deadline passed. We're starting to get nasty letters from HMRC, so we're going to charge you interest, blah, 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 blah. And I was consumed with anxiety about it. So I thought, I simply, I simply can't fix this problem. And it just was going round and round and round in my head for a couple of weeks. I don't know what to do. And then I had this genius idea after about a fortnight. And my genius idea was, oh, I could pray about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm no better than the rest of you. Because I've, you know, I've been a pastor and vicar and everything. And I'm like, still don't know what to do. But anyway, after about two weeks, I thought, oh, I know, maybe... Maybe God can help. So, just amazing, isn't it, really? So anyway, so I, I, pray, I set aside a day. I thought, right, I'm going to spend a day praying and fasting and just putting this thing before the Lord and maybe he'll have an idea. You never know. God of the universe created everything with the word of his heart. He might have an idea how to solve my tiny problem with his tax bill. So anyway, I spent this day praying and during the day, somebody's name came to mind. Somebody that I knew and they were businessmen, so I, you know, I knew they had you know, a bit of money in the bank. So, but this name came to mind. I just felt the Lord saying, go and ask them. Ask them to help. Which is, I just hate doing that. I just I hate having to ask people for, for money. But the Lord said, go and ask them. So I chickened out and I sent them an email because that's a bit easy. You know? I kind of like to give people, I love to give people the option to say no without it kind of being too awkward. So I chickened out and that's the nice thing about modern technology. I just pinged them an email. Very, um, very millennial. Anyway, so I sent them an email. I said, this is from, and they said, oh, come around and see me. So I went around to see them and they said, how much do you need? I said this and they got out their checkbook and they wrote a check for exactly what I, what, exactly what I needed. And they said, the funny thing is, yesterday... God spoke to me and was really challenging me about being more generous with what he has given me. So God had spoken to them the day before God spoke to me about going to approach them to help me with the problem. So if you fix your mind on the problem, that's all you've got to deal with. You fix your mind on the problem solver, well that changes everything. Which is why uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 7 Uh, Peter gives this advice. He says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And the word cast, it's not a like, oh, just toss it over there. It is like the force of the word is chuck it with all your might. Have you ever seen those? um, I was watching one of these films the other day. um, It might be Saving Private Ryan or something. But it's one of these war films where people are throwing grenades at each other. And when a grenade lands at your feet and you know they've pulled the pin out, what do you do? You know, you throw it back with, you know, with full force. And that's the sense of this word that when Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him. He's saying, throw it with all your might on Jesus. Why? Because he cares for you. That's the thing we have to believe. Do we believe that God cares about every detail of our lives? If we do, then we cast it. And we cast it with all our might because if we don't... It will distract us and it may defeat us. Someone was reminding me um, just a couple of weeks ago of a, a lovely scene in um, The Shack. If you've read the book The Shack, there's this uh, lovely scene where, uh, where the, um, God the Father is speaking to Mac, who's the key character. And there's this line where the, the Father says to Mac, he says, you don't believe I'm good. That's why you don't trust me. You don't believe I'm good. And that's why you don't Trust me. So this kind of what we do with our worries and our anxieties really gets to the heart of what we believe about God. Do we believe that God is good? Because if we do, then we'll trust him and we'll believe that he cares about us 
Um, Paul writing in Philippians says, don't be anxious about anything. you like, get real. Don't be anxious about anything. I wake up in the morning and I'm anxious about something. But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. One of the best ways to get your head out of an anxiety space is to thank God for what he's already done. And to thank him for all the ways in which he's worked in your life and all the problems that he's solved previously. Because then you think, ah, oh, well, he, I, if you're like me, I, I'm, you're like this. This is what I do. I have this big problem. God solves it. I'm like, yeah, fantastic. You're brilliant. Next problem. Oh, no. What am I going to do now? Oh, I'll pray about it. And then God solves it. And then the next time. Oh, what am I going to do now? Well, no, I never learn. I never seem to learn. Well, I'm kind of learning more quickly. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. Thank you, God, that you're bigger than my problem. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you care about me. Thank you that this enormous problem in my life is just a speck to you. And one way or another, we'll get through it together. So, worries, they stunt our Christian growth, which is why we need to give them to the Lord. Deceitfulness of wealth deceitful wealth is so deceitful there's nothing wrong with money per se the problem with wealth is that it keeps our gaze fixed on the things of this world that's the problem with wealth and that's why it's so deceitful because our gaze should be fixed on the lord and the deceitfulness of wealth is so quickly our gaze drops onto the things of this world because they're in front of us the whole time and we do actually need stuff in this world. But if we're followers of Jesus, we're no longer citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven and that's where our gaze should be fixed. The things of this world are useful, they are helpful, but they should not consume us. The biggest lie that we live with in the world is that more stuff will make us happy. More stuff will make us happy. And we kind of aspire to this standard of living. And we think when we get to that standard of living, then we'll be happy. Uh, I was reading a book recently that um, for everyone in the world to enjoy the lifestyle of the average American, if there is such a thing, but for everyone on the planet to live to a standard of living that the average American enjoys, it would need five planets to produce the resources needed. So that's never going to happen, is it? Everyone in the world is never going to live to the standard of the average American because there aren't enough worlds to produce all the resources that would be needed for everyone to live to that standard of living. So having more stuff can't be what makes us happy. Can't be the solution to living a happy life is having this amount of stuff. I was also reading there was a, a, a change in the way uh, advertising was done before and after the Second World War. So generally before the Second World War, the way products were advertised was to say, um, here is a brand of washing powder and it is better than this washing powder over here. That's how, that's how it's advertised. So here's my product, and it's better than that product. So please buy it. After the Second World War, there was a very conscious and deliberate shift in advertising. And the way things are advertised now is to say that 
If you don't have this thing, you are going to miss out. You need to have this product to live a happy life. So just whenever, you know, when you're watching adverts later today, just think about the message behind the advert. And the message behind every single advert is you need to have this product. Not just that it's better than any other, but you need to have it. Uh, one of the ones that sticks in my mind is the, um, the terrible um, Lynx adverts. Other deodorants are available. But the terrible Lynx adverts, there was that one with the, um, there was one on a coach in Mexico or something. And then this, this um, uh, can of deodorant Lynx rolls down the bus and everyone thinks it's, you know, it's a bomb. And then they realise, oh no, it's deodorant. Just, you know, every, you know, every advert, it's like, you need to have this. That's the great lie that the world tells us. But it's deceptive and it is deceitful and it doesn't lead to happiness. I used this, um, this illustration a few weeks ago. I've made no apology for using it again. Just this little illustration with the, with the string and the little end is coloured in black and that little end there, that's, that's your life on earth. That's your 60, 70, 80, 90, maybe 100, maybe. Um, but that's, that's all we get in this life. And this is eternity, which is a bit shorter than it was because we cut some off. But, um, but I just have to imagine, it's, just imagine it kind of goes on and on and on. It's, it's, eternity is a bit shorter than when I first did this a few weeks ago. You just have to imagine it's an endless piece of string. And when you look at it like that, it is so obvious where our focus should be. This is eternity, where we're going to spend most of our existence. But we get so wrapped up with what's here. And, you know, our riches are here. This is where our wealth is. This is where our houses are. This is where our cars are. This is where all our stuff is. And when we get to there, we leave it all behind. So what, you know, where should most of our attention be? It should be on what, on this, this bit, not, not this bit. But riches are so deceitful. So we just need to be aware of that and think, well, actually, I need stuff, but I want to sit lightly to it. That's the challenge. Can we sit lightly so we enjoy it, but we're not consumed by it? So, and then there's, the third thing is desire for other things. Desire for other things, pleasures. Pleasures are so deceptive. I was just, I was thinking, um, I won't name names, but you probably work it out. Um, a few years ago, one of my children, so that narrows it down, uh, one of my children was hoping that they could gain employment as a proofreader for novels. Because what they most enjoyed was sitting in bed reading books. And they thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if someone would pay me to sit in bed reading books? And uh, I pointed out there are not many of those jobs going around and there's not a very kind of clear career path to being paid to sit in bed reading books. But they, they, you know, they kind of wanted the easy life. You know, they wanted the easy option. And there's something in us that loves... It kind of loves the, you know, when I'm out in the garden, as I say, I'm not the most enthusiastic gardener, but when I'm out in the garden, I kind of look at some jobs that need doing, and I think, oh, that's way too hard. Let me, I'm going to, I'm going to find an easier job to do, because it's just easier. You know, there's something in us, we, you know, we're a bit kind of lazy as human beings. If it's like a hard thing to do, an easy thing to do, oh, well, oh, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll come back to the hard bit later. 
which is why the garden's been in a state it has been for the last 10 years, because we just literally never got to that point. You know, there's something in us that kind of... But actually, to follow Jesus is not an easy life. That's the thing. If you want to follow Jesus, it's hard. It's hard work, and it requires discipline. Uh, You know, if you want to win gold medal in 100 metres at the Olympics, you are not going to do it sitting in front of the telly, eating burgers. You know that. If you want to win 100 metres, you've got to, you know, you've got to get up early. You've got to go to the track early. You've got to lose your social life. You've got to stop enjoying eating nice things. You know, you've got to really discipline yourself. And actually, if you want to live a fruitful life for Jesus, this, it's not about being miserable, but it is about being disciplined. It's about being focused. It's about not being deceived by things. And it's, it's not thinking, oh, well, oh, it's just, it's just too much effort. To read the Bible every day. Literally. I've got to read the Bible every day? <sighs> I've got to pray every day? Are you kidding? Can I just do five minutes on a Sunday? Would that not cut it? Well, well, if you want to come last in the 100 metres, sit on the sofa and eat burgers. You'll still get to the end of the track, but you're not going to win. Discipline. Paul writes... 1 Corinthians, he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will last. but We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. Now I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. We do it to get a crown that will last forever, run in such a way as to win the prize. So I want to live a life for Jesus that is not stunted, but which is fruitful. And I want to live a life that is more fruitful than it is Today, I want to look back in five or ten years' time and see that my life has become more fruitful. And if we want our lives to be more fruitful, then we have to tackle the things that stunt our growth. Life's worries, riches and pleasures. So let's address those things. Let's, as we live through these uh, days, as we face a future which seems um, uncertain and difficult in so many ways. Let's not be distracted by the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the pleasures. But let's fix our eyes on Jesus. So we're going to turn to a time of prayer. A time for us either aloud or in the quietness of our hearts.